Welcome to Cybersecurity Insights and Perspectives. I'm your host, Kevin Green. Today, we have industry experts with their insights and perspectives on the latest cybersecurity news that affects your agency and organization. Today, we have Jim Ralph, Chief Security Officer at Aetna. Good day, Jim. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, Kevin. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome. Thanks for joining our podcast today. I think we have a lot of interesting things to talk about as it relates to the things you're doing at Aetna and just the general cybersecurity health that's going on in the world today. Hey, Jim, you've been very forward-leaning in your approach to software assurance and AppSec. What advice would you give to other chief security officers who are struggling to gain the trust and support to formalize these practices in their organizations? Sure. Well, the first thing is I don't think of it as AppSec anymore. Uh, I think of it as software security. And the reason I'm saying software security versus application security is uh, software security is a little broader. And uh, software is sort of pervasive today. There's so many different ways to get access to software, mobile apps, web apps. So uh, there are third-party apps. There are cloud service apps. There are uh, you know lots of different ways. And the, re- the reality is the world is full of software. And so um, we've got to worry about software that we manufacture, uh, you know, custom build, software that we integrate, software that we uh, we take from third parties, software that uh, originates from open source, uh, software that's in devices in our enterprise, in our environment that uh, were brought by someone else. So software security is a little bit more holistic. So I start by you know thinking about uh, software security and a software security program uh, that's uh, that's comprehensive. The most important thing that I do, and this sounds somewhat unconventional, uh, but it it works, and that is that I never mention security. And with a software security program, the worst thing you can do is say we have to do this to improve security. And the reason I say it's the worst thing is because that's the part that's not measurable. The probability of risk is really challenging for any CISO to convince business leaders. And you can do it to various degrees of success, but it's it's hard. It's uh, it's just hard to measure. It's hard for them to internalize it. It's much harder for software. Most software vulnerabilities, when they're exploited, the end user, the consumer or the end user, uh, who ultimately becomes a victim of that exploit, doesn't discover that for months after the fact, after the actual exploit. And it's never traced back to the original vulnerability in software. So um, the reality is it's very difficult to convince senior executives of that probability of it happening because it's difficult to measure. So don't even try. There's no need for it. It's, uh, there's a better way of positioning a software security program. And the way to do it is to take a look at how much money is spent by the enterprise on developing and maintaining software. And then go to the CFO, CEO, CIO, any combination of the C-suite, and say, whatever that dollar amount is on an annual basis, would you be willing to save 15% of that in productivity? First of all, it's very easy to get an audience with anybody in the C-suite when you come in with that value proposition. You don't have to say anything about risk. You don't have to say anything about security. You don't have to say anything about doing the right thing. You can simply say, does our enterprise wish to save 15% of the total cost of uh, developing, maintaining, enhancing uh, software? 
And if the answer is yes, which inevitably it is, then the next statement is, then would you be willing to give me 15% of what we spend on an annualized basis to retool the software development process to produce an annualized return of a minimum of 15% uh, gain in productivity for every dollar we spend on software development and maintenance and uh, enhancements and year over year. So in the case of Aetna, we're running right now a $21 million save every year that we develop, enhance, maintain software. And that's doing, we, we achieve all of that without even the implementation of uh, DevOps across the entire enterprise. It's relatively straightforward to measure and quantify, um, which is often difficult and challenging in security assignments. So here's the way you measure it. There are two levers that drive the productivity gain across an enterprise. Lever one is any step, activity, process, tool that prevents a vulnerability from being embedded in the software. If you can prevent the vulnerability from being in the software, then you don't have to fix it. So the cost of fixing that defect is negated or not necessary and therefore represents a productivity gain because you don't have to spend any labor time fixing that uh, vulnerability or defect. So essentially um, preventing the defect is a save. The second component is fixing the defect earlier in the life cycle costs 10 times less money than fixing it after you've developed and put the software in production. So pen testing the application, fixing it after the application exists it's in production costs 10 times more than simply having a developer who's writing the code essentially use a spell checker capability of static analysis to identify the vulnerability and fix it on the spot. A 10x difference. So you, those are your two levers. So you add up the amount of time that does not have to be spent on uh, fixing a defect and the savings of fixing a defect earlier. The combination of those two things, in our case, adds up $21 million a year. So that's a good point that you brought up. So the cost of maintained software and the productivity gains are really key drivers to help uh, CISOs socialize what they want to do, you know, in terms of how they want to introduce software security into the organization. That's exactly right. Now, some organizations have a budget for fixing defects, like they allocate time for it. Other organizations don't, and then they only fix defects that break the software. But the cost of fixing the defect is what you want to either avoid or reduce. And it's easy to measure. Now, what's required for this model is a way of identifying the defects. And so we use basically a standard cost model for a complex defect to fix. Uh, it, it's eight hours. For a moderate defect, it's four hours. For a easy defect, it's two hours. So we just take security defects and put them in those three categories based on the labor time it takes to fix it. And then we estimate what it is. It's either two, four, or eight. And at whenever we prevent 
the defect um, by using a, a framework that eliminates, you know, like an ASAPI framework. You know, that would uh, eliminate the defect by enforcing static code analysis. Uh, you eliminate uh, cross-site scripting, the, the number one defect that uh, is injected into uh, most software development uh, projects. So by eliminating the defect, you then say, all right, if that defect takes, you know, eight hours to fix or would take eight hours to fix, then we've just put eight hours in the bank. And every time we've done that, we put eight hours in the bank. And then other defects that can be fixed during development versus after the the uh, software is in a build environment, then you get a 10x uh, differential. So if it took 10 hours uh, to fix, it only takes one hour. So once again, you, you measure that and put that in the bank. So accumulating that over a year adds up to some pretty big numbers. And it makes the productivity save compelling right um, now the analogy is this is the best analogy to use um, just think of a car that's manufactured a car is manufactured on a assembly line and let's just say for the sake of argument that the car rolls off the assembly line and it has dents in the uh, passenger side door now there's two ways of addressing the dents or the problem with the dents because you obviously can't sell the car with the dents in the door so uh, you have two options one is you get a crew to bang out the dents, buff it, and, uh, and then send it to the dealer and they'll sell it. So that's one option. Uh, and that's really what pen testing is. It's finding defect after you produce the software and then sending the car back for somebody to you know, bang out the dents and fix it, or in this case, re reduce the, uh, the defects. So that's one option. The second option is you can take a look at the manufacturing process and figure out where the robotic arms are misaligned or configured that it's causing the dents. And then you eliminate the actual cause of the dents in the door. So instead of spending time, effort, and money to bang out the dents after the car is manufactured, you fix the dents or you eliminate the dents through the manufacturing process. And software security is fundamentally about eliminating the possibility of the dents um, in the manufacturing process. And the more you do that, the more efficient it is. So it costs less. So it's a simple construct to understand. Go ahead. So Jim, you brought up a good point. So one of the things that I've always said that really increases the cost to maintain software is the accumulation of technical debt, right? And technical debt can come in many different forms. One of the things I want to know from you is what are some good approaches and strategies to address technical debt and how do you realize, and I think you kind of spoke to a little bit here, but how do you realize ROI from that? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and it is something to consider in any uh, software security program. This is my approach. Um, I start with a portfolio of software that exists and I recognize that it exists. And I basically say, all right, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna change the manufacturing process back to the car analogy. So I'm gonna change the software manufacturing process and so anytime that we develop a new app, a new uh, integration project, anytime we're doing uh, new development, I'm going to apply a set of techniques 
essentially controls embedded in the development process that reduce defects and, and fix defects earlier to make it more efficient. Now that's on all new uh, development. And then on enhancements, and this is where programmers are maintaining and changing uh, existing applications, I'm gonna apply the same techniques. Now I'm gonna apply it to those different instances. The technical debt in the legacy systems exists today and it'll exist tomorrow. The difference is if you apply better technique to where the enterprise is allocating development resource, whether it's new development or enhancing existing applications, if you apply the controls to wherever people are touching software, over time, the portfolio risk drops. Why? Because companies spend money on enhancing software that's the most important to the business. And that's the software that gets attention. And if you start by applying effective techniques embedded in the development process for those cases, you're automatically addressing the, th the areas that are most critical to the business. Now, over several years, you can address the legacy, uh, the technical debt, as you described, by every time you enhance an existing application, you take the time to uh, review the results of your static analysis and dynamic scanning uh, for the entire app, and you fix that, you fix those defects, even if you batch them. Uh, over time, uh, but you start to whittle down that debt. But the most important thing to do is to start with the new development and then the enhancements where you're already spending money today. That's where you get the positive cost benefit in terms of the productivity gain. And that's where what you're touching is the most important part of the software portfolio. And then over time, you as you get more uh, skill across the enterprise, then you can apply it to the technical debt and reduce that as well. And, you know, we have, uh, uh, we're probably in the 70 to 80 million lines of code. Uh, I'm guessing in terms of uh, code that's gone through uh, efficient and effective uh, process today that, uh, at Aetna. And it's most of our code base, our mainframe code, we don't pay much attention to, but uh, uh, everything else we do. Does that, that help? That's excellent. I think you provided some really, really good nuggets there that can help organizations not only formalize software assurance and software security, but also mature their software security programs and, and be able to reduce the cost that it takes to maintain software. I want to shift gears for a second. You have been a huge, since I've known you, you have been a huge proponent of BSIM, Build Security and Maturity Model. How long has Aetna been participating is the first question I want to ask you. And the second question is, what are some of the practices you have observed over the years that tend to lead to good software security? Yeah, it's, um, so BSIM has really been fascinating and it's a foundation for software security. So frankly, anybody who wants to do anything in software security should start with BSIM because it's a way of baselining yourself against basically any other entity out there that cares about software security. There's 120 some odd companies that uh, participate on an uh, annual basis. And 
they're some of the you know the biggest ISVs, uh, software companies, as well as uh, large enterprises, and frankly, anybody who cares about software security. And that's basically the the uh, the surrogate, if you will, that you can compare yourself against. Um, there are 112 activities in uh, BSIM. You don't have to do them all. They're they're all observed activities. So uh, there's a there's at least one and, and, and or more BSIM companies uh, where they have observed activity and behavior that's recognized as a security activity that uh, that promotes good uh, software hygiene. Um, in some cases, and I'll just take bug bounty programs because it's an easy one. Um, if I was a software manufacturer, I'd spend a lot of time and effort on bug bounty programs. That that would be a critical, essential core uh, activity in uh, in my software security program. I don't use bug bounty programs. I use something a little bit different. I use uh, services that um, hire a bunch of freelance. Uh, pen testers and reward those pen testers with opportunities to pen test uh, specific applications that they find vulnerabilities that get paid. So, uh, and then I get the aggregate results from that. I call it, it's kind of like a, a crowdsourcing version of uh, pen testing. Right. It's not really a bug bounty program per se, it, it's a derivative. Now, it's not a BSIM activity. But it's, to me, it's a good activity. Bug bounty program is a BSIM activity. But I choose not to do it because I'm not in the commercial software business. If I were, I'd do it and I'd make sure that was mandatory. And in fact, what I've learned through BSIM is that <laughs> there are certain activities that are prevalent on the East Coast of uh, enterprises. And there are certain activities that are prevalent on the West Coast, enterprises based on the West Coast. And um, they're different. Wow. Uh, there's, there's more commonality in good software security practices across the East and West Coast. But how software is developed on the East Coast is different than how it's developed in the West Coast. And I'm not suggesting one is better or worse. I'm just purely pointing out that it's uh, it's different. It's fundamentally different. And when I talk to CISOs on the West Coast, they talk differently about software security than they do on the West Coast, on the East Coast. And uh, again, that's not necessarily a, a good thing or a bad thing. It's not like one's better than the other. There are some nuances there. The foundations are all pretty much the same. So an example would be if I was talking to a CISO on the East Coast, they'd say, yeah, we use this tool for static analysis. When I talk to somebody on the West Coast, they say, yeah, we developed three or four tools for static analysis. That's right. what we use. So, right. you know, they, they both are using the control, but they're doing it very differently. Right. That's interesting. And um, I may have to call Gary and talk to Gary about that because, you know, what are the some of the philosophical differences, some of the cultural differences from East to West? I mean, if you look at the whole VC community and what the VC does, folks on the East Coast are are are, are not as as likely to take risk as folks on the West Coast. So I wanna I wonder if there's a linkage with that, but you kind of point out something that's really kind of interesting to me. Yeah, there's a, definitely some societal differences, <laughs> cultural differences without a doubt. I mean, on the West Coast, uh, build your software is the mentality don't buy your software uh why would anybody want to do that you know software developers are all over the place let's just build it that's what we do we're in silicon valley that's that's what we do so when you use instrumentation tools and orchestration tools and security tools in the development process you might as well build your own that's kind of the west coast phenomena and on the east coast 
uh, nobody uh, builds your own. They all buy uh, all the tools. And the interesting thing is that software developers on the West Coast actually have more of a demonstrated uh, responsibility for security. They, they understand that that's their job, not someone else's. On the East Coast, developers will say, well, that's not my job. I'm not in security. I develop software. You want security? Go talk to the security people. But right. uh, you know, that's not my job, right? right. And in reality, uh, mature software uh, security programs get the developers to uh, understand that it's their accountability, the right quality software. And if they do it, well, the first time, it's highly effective for the enterprise. So that's ultimately where we're heading towards. In some cases, the West Coast have a bit of a jump because they understand that software security is their responsibility. On the East Coast, there's a lot more education that's required. And frankly, uh, I can tell you that in BSIM, uh, there are international organizations that participate as well. And there are many cultural differences. Uh, there are differences in, the U- in the, uh, Europe and there are differences in the Far East. Uh, and so even though the topic is the same, software security, there's going to be some different interpretations and flavors based on regional uh, you know, constructs around the globe. Hey, Jim, what impact do you think IoT will have on the healthcare community in the foreseeable future? And what role is Aetna playing to address patient safety in the medical device community? Well, the first question um what you have in a, in, I'll just t- stick with providers, the provider seg- segment. So these are healthcare providers that uh, treat patients and, uh, you know, hospitals and uh, doctor's offices uh, and uh, urgent care facilities, et cetera, et cetera. And in that provider space, uh, to give high quality healthcare to uh, the masses uh, requires a lot of technology today. And um, with that technology, uh, there are a lot of components, a lot of uh, different uh, hardware components that have software embedded in them. Uh, a lot of them, are more and more of them are becoming network. Uh, and so the challenge in the provider space is the diversity of uh, technology in the theater, if you will, in the delivery of healthcare is far more significant than I believe in any other industry. So you've got an interesting combination of diversity of technology and generally speaking, a lack of resource to support that technology. What I mean by that, if you look at the labor ratios in an IT organization in healthcare providers and compare that with other segments of healthcare or other industries, you'll find a a lower concentration of people to support a wider set of responsibilities. And you combine that with the diversity of IT, you've got real challenges. Basically, uh, IT support staff and security as part of that in a, a provider environment have to make tough choices and trade-offs on it, where to allocate their time because there's a million things you know that they have to do, but there's only so much time in the day. So that trade-off forces them uh, to uh, focus on what the high risk uh, uh, issues are and the performance uh, related issues, but it's particularly challenged given the diversity of technology they have. Now, you, you add on top of that uh, the IoT phenomena, and uh, you've got uh, it's almost like a exponentially uh, greater uh, threat landscape that uh, the minimal staffs have to deal with in the provider segment. So. 
really, really challenging, uh, you know, constraint of resources and, and frankly, security professionals, how we allocate resource, uh, scarce resource is the most important decision we make. It's really hard in a provider uh, environment. It's, it, it doesn't mean there aren't good practices, doesn't mean that we can't, you know, address the needs of the, uh, of the consumer in that space, but it's really, really hard. Now, one thing that Aetna did to reduce the size of the uh, attack surface in healthcare, and it wasn't just in Aetna, but we, we uh, did this across the healthcare industry, is um, we stopped using social security number as a unique identifier. Now that may be a keen statement of the obvious for somebody in financial services, right? Uh, but in healthcare today, you go to the doctor, you go to a diagnostician, you go to a, a you know testing provider, you go to get an X-ray. They're all using social security numbers as unique identifier because it's easier to identify patients. And the last thing you want to do is give the wrong treatment to the wrong you know patient. So uh, unfortunately, it's pervasive. It's it's been supported by the government. For a long time, uh, and it's pervasive throughout the healthcare sector. It is becoming and, and started. There's awareness now that that's a problem and that that should be limited. And in the case of Aetna, we've eliminated nine billion instances of social security numbers in our enterprise in the last three years, meaning that they no longer are stored in systems. We no longer require them. We no longer send them in emails. Uh, we've just reduced the number of times that we need to access a social security number and, and limited that to uh, tax and regulatory uh, uh, requirements as opposed to using it as an identifier for a unique identifier for individual patient records. Uh, and, and what's happened is the rest of the industry is re reacting and responding to that. We ask all our vendors to do the same thing. We ask our plan sponsors, which are essentially our customers, to do the same thing. You know, And over time, We've made substantial progress. It's not something that you fix overnight. Right. It's a you know it's systemic, but it is something that if you start and, and persistent uh, about doing one or two things uh, consistently, uh, you can make a fundamental difference to uh, the safety of information that uh, all of our families, when they go to the, the doctor or the hospital, uh, have to deal with. So so that's a positive thing. Hey Jim, before I let you go, I, I want to. Really, you've done a lot of amazing things uh, since I've known you while you've been at Aetna. So I want to know from you, wh what are you most proud of uh, in terms of the work you've done since you've been at Aetna? Well, I tell you, the thing that probably makes me the most proud uh, of uh, what we've accomplished at Aetna has to do with making mistakes. And I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but uh, the reality is, uh, you know, we all make mistakes, uh, but if you can learn from those mistakes, uh, you have the chance for doing something real special. And in my case, about three years ago, I hired a chief data scientist, PhD, NSA background, security, uh, wonderful guy, a guy named uh, Justin. That, uh, uh, and what I asked him to do, I said, look, Justin, come in and build us a data lake across the enterprise just for security. We got all these log files from all these different sources today, and the diversity of sources of log files just quickly increasing. Our sim is, you know, choked with all this stuff. So it's a lot of overhead to, to run. Look, put in a data lake, put some models against it, and let's do a better job of um, of hunting, of cyber hunting, uh, based on the analysis that uh, that you got. And he did exactly that. And and frankly, uh, brought in all sorts of uh, new technology, uh, built a data science team, uh, built uh, like a hundred, over a hundred models from in uh, production. 
all different types of the business, including fraud management and so forth. So did a wonderful job. But while that was going on, we had also implemented eight other examples of models that were driving frontline security controls into production. And so he built exactly what I asked him to do. But what I asked him to do was far more limited than what I should have asked him to do, um, which is what I've now asked him to do, which is catalog all those models. We have over 200 of them. Uh, about 70% of them are uh, machine learning models. Uh, and essentially, uh, we've uh, developed a, a security program where frontline controls are today being driven by models. And that allows us to respond in real time and not be dependent upon people to do investigations of all security incidents that come across. So it eases the uh, the workload on the SOC. It uh, it makes us a lot more effective, uh, and it gives us a, a, a far more significant way of uh, implementing preventative controls. Now, all of that is driven on uh, the foundation of data science influencing control design and implementation and security. And I believe that that's the future. Uh, but I also believe that it's the present today at Aetna. So that's probably the thing I'm most uh, most proud of. That's great. And I'm sure with that data science piece uh, that you've kind of added, you know, somewhat forward leaning, it helps cut down on some of the compliance burdens that you kind of have to uh, respond to as well. It does indeed. And the reality, I don't worry much about compliance. Compliance is a pretty low bar uh, you know, across the board. Um, we have to change our controls consistently based on changes in threat actor tactics. That's a risk-driven uh, security approach. It's essential across all industries. It is. It represents maturity for uh, any enterprise. And today, enterprise resiliency uh, can actually be measured by how often you change your controls, which is the complete opposite of when I started in security 15 years ago. But today, if you're changing controls, we do it. We change a control 1.5 times a day. Um, and we're constantly adjusting based on uh, consuming right. security intelligence, understanding threat actor tactics, and adjusting based on those tactics. Uh, and that's that's the sign of a resilient program. I like that approach. And hopefully with some of the work you've done, we can learn from that and really kind of drive the whole FISMA process towards model-driven security. Because I think that's the way it needs to go based off actual information, intelligence that we get from our threat actors and adversary in terms of what they're trying to uh, attack us with. Yeah. And I think we're closer to that than you think. <laughs> well, I think so. I think so. We got to keep pushing. And, you know, with folks like you out there leading the way, leading the charge, you know, thinking outside the box, I think we're we're making a lot of ground, uh, even though it may not seem like it. And I appreciate the work you're doing and I appreciate having you on. Uh, it's been great. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Jim. Well, I think we have to wrap it up here. We want to thank our guest today, Jim Ralph. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning to Cybersecurity Insights and Perspectives with your host, Kevin Green. Until next time, peace.